This is the CBC Radio Network. Good morning from the high desert. I'm Art Bell. Good to be here. And in a moment, we are going to speak with somebody named Caroline Davies. Caroline uh, is very much involved. Just got back, I, I'm back, I believe, from Egypt. Uh, has worked with uh, uh, Graham Hancock, Robert Boval, those sorts. I think... Uh, uh, she's got a lot to say about the Sphinx and the pyramids. And as you know, the next cruise I take in 1997 is going to be the Art Bell Terror Cruise for those not afraid to live life. We're going to Athens, the Greek islands. Uh, we're going to uh, Rome. We're going to Pompeii. We're going to Alexandria, Egypt. We're going to the pyramids and the Sphinx. So we'll touch all those areas and many more on the uh, 97 cruise. We'll be telling you about that tomorrow. Tonight we're going to talk a little bit about the Sphinx and the pyramids uh, with Caroline, who's been kind enough to get up in the middle of the night. So all that coming up. Uh, one, a couple of more quick items. One is we've got two spectacular things now on the web page that you don't want to miss. One, the moving video with audio of Art's parts. You just download them and run them in Windows. That's all there is to it. And I'm getting tons of reaction to that. Tons of it. People saying, holy mackerel. I would not have believed until I saw. That's why we put it up there for you. The other is a new crop circle in Canada. That's right, Canada. We've got an aerial photograph of an incredible crop circle uh, in Saskatchewan. And um, in all the investigation thus far, uh, there is no sign that this was hoaxed in any way. There are two circles, 42 feet in diameter apiece, in a wheat field near a mine in Saskatchewan. And if you want to see it, we've got that photograph this morning on the web page. It is www.artbell.com. www.artbell.com. And uh, this is the first Canadian crop circle I've got a good photograph of, so I thought you might want to see it. And those of you in Canada certainly might want to see it. Now down, I think, to the Los Angeles area, and uh, uh, Caroline uh, Davies. Caroline, are you there? Yes, I am. Well, good morning. Good morning. Um, it is nice of you to get up in the middle of the night like this. Well, it's uh, going to be a great surprise for people who know me. When I'm in Los Angeles, I'm usually in bed by 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> <laughs> and if I'm in New York, I'm up all night, so... I see, which is where you were when I called you, and so I, I made you get up in the middle of the night. Caroline, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, tell us about Caroline. Well, um, if I may start perhaps by uh, when you earlier introduced me. I know we've only had a really small amount of time to talk with each other. and right. It was a spontaneous phone call. I've actually been in England, actually Britain, more specifically for the past two or three months. Okay. And um, But what did take me to Egypt before that was being part of a team of documentarians and scientists who, re who were redating the age of the Sphinx through geology. Um, I was working with um, John West at that time, and we right. finally made a documentary in the dead on NBC. Um, Richard Hoagland is someone else that um, you know we cross paths with, and I know you speak to him quite frequently. When, when did that documentary run on NBC? 1993, and again in 1994. It's since then um, been distributed to Arts and Entertainment, Discovery Channel, and Europe has had its own version as well. What was it called? Mystery of the Sphinx. The Mystery of the Sphinx. Yeah. Actually, it was a great thing to be a participant of because up until that time, networks weren't really airing documentaries of that ilk, you know, the I know. kind. 
and it really broke that paradigm and we had great ratings for that year and all the networks got really excited and that's why you've seen a slew of um, documentaries like that over the past few years. All right, well, it was controversial because it, it attempted to uh, date the Sphinx uh, to to what date, and how did that collide with uh, traditional thought on the subject? Well, I think, um, really, we still have a very nebulous date. Dr. Robert Schock from Boston University, who is um, the major geologist that's been working on this project um, since at least 1991, uh, maybe 1990, um, he, he is saying that it's probably seven to 9,000, or it was um, built seven to 9,000 B.C., uh, we don't have evidence that that's the exact date. I have a personal feeling, and I think it's probably much older than that at this particular point. How much older? Um, I could say anything from um, maybe 10,000 years older to wow. beyond. Um, my particular feeling about this subject is that over the past maybe five to ten years, there have been areas in different parts of the world where anthropologists, geologists, and other disciplines besides archaeologists um, have and Egyptologists have, have been going and discovering that we have actually miscalculated a lot of that history and put dates on things that weren't really accurate. And I have a feeling maybe, um, you know, any time from the next year to three or four, that there will be so much that's come forward in the public eye of realization that we have been miscalculating our history and who we are. How could, how could we miss it by that much? Do you mean the age of the Sphinx? Yes, ma'am. Um, well, I think that when we are going to university uh, or to school, that we have a perpetual cycle of education standards. And within those, we have a certain amount of textbooks. And I know that from, um, you know, a couple of centuries ago, when we were bringing artifacts out of different um, areas, that we didn't have as much knowledge about certain places as we do now. And it's something that's been handed down. I think that today, our... Um, our world of academics have a lot at stake in the fact that they've spent their lives, you know, being educated about one idea and what it is, and then they've gone off and taught that same idea, and we get rigid as human beings and don't give ourselves a lot of space or um, flexibility to realize that we might have made a mistake or, you know, that we can change our minds and come to new understandings. Um, the, the fact that the age, that the Sphinx is thousands of years older just displaces a line of history and how humanity has developed at that time. I mean, even if the Sphinx was built, you know, during seven or 8,000 B.C., who was on the planet at that time that could build such an extraordinary sculpture as the Sphinx. I mean, it's built, carved out of one piece of limestone bedrock. Well, let me turn that question on you. Who could have been? Well, that's interesting, isn't it? I'm not sure. I um, I don't tend to make a lot. I, I sort of think in two ways. I'm, I'm far more... Um, intuitive person, creative person, artistic person, feeling person. So I'll go along and I might have several ideas or see a point of view from, you know, quite a few perspectives. If I'm going to get intellectual, academic about something, then I don't generally make choices or decisions until I know all the facts or as many of the facts as I can possibly come to. Um, so we could 
sort of sync up a lot of different things. Um, I know that you're aware of Zechariah Sitchin's work, for example. I'm going to have him on at the end of the week, yeah. You do? Okay, I think his work is fantastic. And, uh, you know, we might look at his work a little bit more deeply and look at the Anunnaki and the legacy left to us from the idea of extraterrestrial civilizations. We have the idea that um, perhaps it's a remnant of Atlantis. Um, then we have the connection with the face on Mars. I think Richard's done really excellent work on correlating. If you were forced to lean toward one of the above, mm -hmm. which would you lean toward? Okay, I would lean towards Zechariah Sitchin's idea um, of the Anunnaki, of the, um, you know, uh, combinations of, of um, beings and, and the genetic work that was going on at that time. Mm -hmm. It's um, a real wild guess, Art. I mean, don't... Oh, no, that's <laughs> fine. Uh, I live in the world of wild guesses. Mm -hmm. uh, all right. If that's the case, then the next big question is, what is the purpose of the Sphinx, of the pyramids. And uh, if you lean in that direction, then w what would you guess for with regard to a purpose? Mm. Oh, that opens a huge can of worms, doesn't it? Because mm. when you ask me that, um, I'm going, well, I don't have quite all the intellectual, <laughs> um, you know, stuff that needs to go with that to, to say that. Um, I've had personal experiences with the pyramids on the Giza Plateau. All right, let, let's talk about that because okay. I, I am, I, I've had a, we, we do a yearly cruise, you know, and mm. um, I changed the cruise coming up. Uh, we were going to do one cruise of the Eastern Med and I said, no, I want to go see the, uh, the pyramids. Mm -hmm. And I have felt drawn to the pyramids and to the Sphinx for a very long time. So I'm going to do it. Uh, I'm just plain going to do it. I want to go, and I don't know why I feel drawn to it, but I do. Mm -hmm. And so you were there. Yeah. You tell me and tell everybody what's there. What do you feel? Well, you know, I could say that um, when you tell me that about your particular feelings about it, to me, on that level, it's a place of transformation. I mean, I, I would... I would have to expect and anticipate that the um, astronomical data that's being collected and all that is absolutely relevant and very important. That's not my field. As I said, my field is, is more in the feeling senses, and I would say transformation. I have seen extraordinary things happen to people, including myself, in that particular area of the world, and um, I've had the privilege of being able to spend time inside the King's Chamber of the Great Pyramid and time absolutely alone on the Giza Plateau by myself. I mean, I've had some extraordinary things happen, and it was a life-changing. The first time I went to Egypt changed my life forever. Explain. Um, well, I was um, on a completely different direction in my life. I was actually trying to become a businesswoman. I had um, a marriage that I'd left, and I'd sort of been about nine or ten months out of that and was back into producing, working with um, producers and things like that, just getting my feet on the ground after that. And out of the blue, I had a knock on the door from um, an old a business acquaintance of mine that I'd worked for years and years and years before. I said, oh, I found you, and I thought I'd drop in for tea. <laughs> well, we started talking, and um, he hadn't known of my photography work because that's probably what I'm best known for um, above and beyond anything else. And, you know, he was telling me, about, oh, do you want to see some photographs of mine? And he said, well, sure. So I showed him, and he said, oh, my God, I didn't know you could do this. So it's a long story. I told him the long story, and he said, well, I really think you should come to Egypt with us because you can do something really special. 
So I said, okay, well, I didn't even own cameras at that time. And um, so I got on the phone and called some friends and ended up borrowing a couple of really old funky Nikons um, to do this trip with. And really, because I hadn't done photography seriously for a while, I just prayed that I would come back with one really amazing photograph. Well, there are so many levels of experiences that I had from that one meeting um, that since then my whole life has been about... Uh, I mean, I mean, really, I'm only at the beginning of it. It's probably going to take me a lifetime to do. But once I did that, I could see and feel very clearly that I had an opportunity to be able to photograph these ancient sacred sites that we've been, you know, thinking about more and more lately, mm-hmm. and that I would do that. So basically, I stayed with the Sphinx Project for um, just about three years. And um, I left the team in post-production. And once I moved on from that, although John and I still, you know, we're still doing photographic work and when we can help each other, we do. Um, I, While I was in Egypt, I decided that I was, I felt that there was a connection in, with Britain as well, with the ancient stones. I mean, that's one example of changing my life, I think, on a spiritual level, that it was a grounding platform for me. I think that very often with um, people who are of a spiritual bent or ilk, will often talk about going to Egypt and having what they call ascending initiations. And for me, it was very much a descending initiation. I'd had a lot of resistance about working in this particular world and the way it is. Um, I found it very aggressive, very angry. It, it It was a lovely and beautiful world, but I didn't really, really want to participate in the world that much. So I wasn't um, what you would call a grounded, um, ambitious business person. And that project and that experience, particularly going back to the Giza Plateau, was one of those that just made such a huge imprint on me that I haven't been able to give up this particular aspect of my life. You spent Um, time in the King's Chamber. Yeah. What is that like? Well, you know, my my observation is, is that it's different for everybody. Um, and I've seen um, amazing things happen to various people personally. For me, I've gone in there when there have been a group of um, 10 people and then on numerous occasions when there have been groups of just four people, you know, for very long periods of time, six to eight hours. Right. Um, what happened to me continuously was that I... Just, I always chose to go and just lie on my back in the very center of the king's chamber. And once I did that, it was as though I can only describe the feeling as being um, dead. It wasn't scary or anything like that. It's just that my body could not move. And then what has happened to me consistently is whether my eyes are open or closed is being able to see that famous eye that we always associate with the pyramid. You mean almost a, a paralysis? Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. I, I have, you know, I don't discount this at all. I have talked to so many people now, like yourself, who have been in the King's Chamber. They find it difficult to describe mm-hmm. what happened to them, mm-hmm. but it was transformational. You yeah. know, it, it sounds like touchy-feely stuff, but I think it's real. I must say it was a very kind experience for me. Um, and numerous other people I've seen have had visions have had out-of-body experiences. I have seen um, in very short periods of time actually the toughest of the toughest people that you could possibly imagine go in there and come out in tears. That's what I've heard. You know, I'm going to change my life, and I have seen them change their lives. I witnessed a, a very, very young man. He was only in his early 20s, and he hadn't um, quite learned 
Well, he was very arrogant. And so he was nice to people he thought was were powerful, and if he thought you were nobody, he treated you that way. And he found someone and got himself locked in the pyramid for the night. Oh. And he had a very horrifying experience. I mean, you know, he survived it to tell it. But what was so miraculous was that once he went through that experience, he became the nicest young man that you could possibly imagine. I mean, it was like night and day. I've seen this. So it it is... It has layers and layers of purposes. I mean, it's just not, um, you know, whatever, whatever hypotheses we have on it on a technical level, there's got to be that, that there's this doorway, this, this energetic doorway that exists. Um, the Giza Plateau for me is, is one of those places where I feel very gifted, very taken care of. I've had um, a lot of the times my work takes me into areas where I'll take a tumble or a fall. I get very excited and very adventurous when I'm doing what I'm doing. And one time I fell off a, probably a, an eight-foot wall wow. and um, fortunately only injured my back a little bit, but I was down there as one and um, had to deal with that. And I was back when I went back up to the plateau, it was one night, and I was completely healed from that. So, Caroline, um, I got a call from London a few days ago mm -hmm. from Robert Bavall. And, uh, you know, he's co-author with Graham Hancock, right. as you well know. And, and he was, um, I'm going to use the word freaked out. He said there is some of the most dramatic news about the Sphinx and the, uh, the pyramids and incredibly dramatic news. And he wouldn't tell me what it was. Mm -hmm. um, hold on. We're at the bottom of the hour here and we'll come right back to you. Maybe you've got a hint of what it is and we'll ask you when we come back or maybe you don't. And we'll hold the suspense. I don't know. Talking a little bit about the Sphinx and the pyramids at Giza. I'm Art Bell, and this is the American CBC Radio Network. Taking calls on the wild card line at 702-727-1295. That's 702-727-1295. First-time callers can reach Art Bell at 702-727-1222. 702-727-1222. Now, here again, Art Bell. Once again, here I am, and we will have Graham Hancock... Robert Bavall here, Friday night, Saturday morning, and they will talk about the, hesitate to use the word, hardware aspects of the Sphinx and the pyramids. But there's more to those things, those artifacts, than just the hardware and the secrets that uh, may lie beneath. There is the spiritual side of these things, and clearly there is something to it. Here talking mainly about that is Caroline... Davies, who uh, has participated in some of the major uh, works, uh, documentaries done on this subject. Uh, Caroline, are you there? Yes, I am. All right. Um, as I said, I got a kind of a strange call from Robert Bouval. You know, he doesn't get excited that easily, but he was really uh, very excited. He he said there was something going on there that everybody needed to know about. I, I know that they're talking about opening a chamber. Right. But I was already aware of that. So there, there's something else that they're on to. 
that he, that he didn't tell me about. Do you have any idea what that no, might be? No, I don't. And, you know, I've not met Robert Bavall at all. Uh-huh. Um, I, I'm wondering if, you know, they have a conference and a symposium this weekend um, dealing with these subject matters. That's right. I'm wondering if they're saving it for that. I, I suppose they are, and that's probably why he wouldn't tell me. <laughs> so I'll hear about it Saturday, sure. Saturday morning. <laughs> have a piece of candy, but no, you can't eat it. <laughs> yeah, there you are. Um, all right. I just got a fact. Somebody said, hey, Art, in this Sunday's Seattle Times, there was an interesting story about the age of man in Australia. Scientists claim to have found evidence of modern man that were estimated to be about 176,000 years old. Mm. Now, that shouldn't be. Just as the Sphinx and the pyramids shouldn't, according to traditional conventional science, be as old as you say, we keep finding things older and older and older. How's science going to deal with this? That's going to be very interesting. Well, right now they're they're not dealing with it. Um, well, they're dealing with it, but uh, how can I say this? Um, let's see. Kicking and screaming. Yes, uh, really, yes. I mean, when you look back, even on on the debates that have um, occurred over the past few years with the Sphinx um, project, the um, Geological Associations um, conference um, in 1991, the um, American Association for the Advancement um, debate that was held in 1992. Um, you know, I just sort of looked back on some of this work the other night and I could see that um, it's just very difficult for them. And at some point, it's going to be like the 100th monkey syndrome, <laughs> I think. Yes. You know, where it's just going to be too much. And, and we'll have, as I think I was alluding to this earlier, at some point we'll have so much more information than we have now that we'll be able to rewrite the textbooks all at once. And, you know, they'll serve us for another period of time. But don't you see as we've been, um, you know, when we, when we look back on our history and this um, really interesting time that we're in right now, and, and we talk about there being things beyond the mechanical side of things or the technological side of things, that we're just really starting to be able to appreciate that and experience it and see it ourselves. Well, I, I try to look at both. And uh, mm-hmm. while the, Graham's work and Robert Bavall's very interesting, very interesting. Yes, it is. On the mechanical kind of side of things, there is another side to these. Uh, you know, what are they, uh, Caroline? Are these monuments? Are these? I mean, the old idea was that the uh, the uh, pyramids were burial places for pharaohs and kings and I such. I don't personally believe that. What I'm do, not saying you, that's not the truth. I, I understand. What do you think? Well, well, I think that they, I think that they have to serve multi-level purposes, such as we have multi-dimensional purposes, um, you know. And I think that even people's individual abilities can serve them either in a, you know, fully expanded way, so they've got full sight, or in a very limited way. I think these monuments are monuments. I think they're reminders. I think we can put a lot of different meanings to them. I think that they have important latitudal, longitudinal messages in them. I think they were used for technical reasons. And I think alongside of that, there is a spiritual access to them. And, and maybe that's what we, we can aspire to when we get a grasp on this about what balance is. Um, you know, we've had a, a, an industrial time where we haven't, or we've been losing the balance of, you know, a, a positive spiritual life. And, you know, maybe that's one of the things we can garner from these areas. I mean, certainly when I'm going around and photographing ancient sites, you know, some people say, why are you photographing these old stones? And I'm just hoping that when I get my 
bodies of works together and people are viewing them that in some way they can be touched by something beautiful. What would you say to somebody who would say, oh man, all this is too touchy-feely for me, what a bunch of baloney, mm -hmm. this is rock, mm -hmm. it's just rock, you go over there and have a spiritual experience, it's all in your own head. Uh-huh. What do you say to that? I, I agree with them. For them, it would be, don't you think? If they feel, if they're expressing that so strongly and that's what they feel, how, I mean, it's not that they, it may not be their path or their life experience to go there and, and be surprised and have an experience, but if that's how they perceive it, then that's how they're going to perceive it. Um, personally, I'm not going to try and change anybody's minds because we're all different. We're also very, very different. We all have Well, yeah, but the young man that you described. Yeah. Uh, the not-so-nice guy, uh -huh. uh, he would fit into almost, I would think, that category, and yet he went in, and um, dis despite his best efforts to stay nasty, I'm sure he had some transformational experience in there. Well, he did. The difference between him and someone who, who may not feel that there is anything other than the physical, you know, this is rock, mm -hmm. he had um, quite a background in... Um, expanded consciousness and so on and so forth it's just that very often even if someone has expanded well, what I call expanded consciousness you can figure out what that is um, they may not they may be able to say the correct words but they're not quite able to act out the door, the door is not really open. Exactly. All right. I've I got mean, a, you know, it's a good start. Give people credit for being able to at least, you know, switch on a plug in their minds. But when I'm looking at our, our revolution that we're having in society, um, I'm seeing that it looks like there's a process that goes on. You know, a light switch goes on and then suddenly goes, oh, yeah, that that has some significance. But it takes a while to break the habit, you know, of, of behaving in a certain way. All right, Caroline, hold on just a moment. I want to bring some... Uh... Uh, some callers online. If you have a question for Caroline, uh, she's done extensive work in Egypt, photography, um, documentary work, and so forth, and has a lot to say about this area. Uh, you're welcome to come now. And uh, we'll take a brief break and then get you on the air. If you're uh, east of the Rockies, the number is 1-800-825-5033. We'll be right back. What in LA, Caroline? I'm on the fringes of Los Angeles, actually. I, I live in the um, foothills of the San Gabriel Mountains. All right. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, a few questions? Yes. All right, good. Uh, first time caller line, you're on the air with Caroline Davies. Hi. Yeah, this is Tim from Clear Lake, uh, uh, Texas. Yes, uh, Texas, yes, sir. Okay, well, golly, after hearing that, it makes me feel a little more comfortable. I thought I was weird in the world flying around all over the place. <laughs> Not really. And it, just hearing you, wow, you got to have her on a special art. Um, anyway, I've had these, uh, experiences and these, uh, visions in 95, I've seen 96 this year. I've seen things in 97. I've seen things all over the news. I've been seeing these. And, uh, I've got a question to you, Art, about, has anybody ever called you and plainly straight out said they've ever seen the guys, the big guys, with, with the big eyes? Of course, uh, many people, sir, have, have said that. Uh, and whether there is a relationship to what is in e Egypt and what is on Mars, I don't know. I kind of have this feeling, uh, Caroline, there is. Mm -hmm. I lean toward that. Um, what, what I can see on Mars, the face, mm -hmm. the artifacts, the pyramidal shapes, uh, they seem to have a relationship to uh, what's here on Earth. Mm -hmm. It seems somewhat unmistakable to me. And, and you combine that with the recent news about the meteorite, and the fact that there was some form of microbial life on Mars, 
millions of years ago. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't seem much of a stretch to me to imagine there was a higher life form on Mars mm -hmm. at one time. Well, I thought Courtney Brown's um, work was really interesting as well as Major Ed Dames, too. Exactly. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, Wild Card Line, you're on the air with Caroline Davies. Hi. Uh, hi, Caroline. This is Cindy from Trump. Hello. And uh, on 93, I uh, had an experience... Um, I'd been really sick, and, and uh, I'd woke up one morning, and I'd just been out of the hospital for a couple of days. And I went into this trance-like, and uh, I was wandering in the land of Egypt, and, and the, the sands and the, the grounds and everything were, were orchid and had shadows, and, and uh, I was just a young child. And I was in the marketplace, and I was looking for the house of Mosley. And uh, when I woke up, I felt really, really bad, and I kept feeling worse and worse. And later on that night, I arrested three times. And I just, you know, it's just something that I will never, ever forget. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just so vivid and so beautiful and so real. All right, well, thank you. Um, Caroline, I've had about two days or three days of really strange calls mm -hmm. about people experiencing sleep paralysis uh what they call sleep paralysis uh suddenly in in an apparent wakeful state mm -hmm. unable to move simply absolutely paralyzed uh many of the people who sort of give in to the experience or decide to let it go which is something i don't think i can do i haven't been able to yet um begin to talk about a out of body or a feeling that they're out of body that it it, be, it starts to become an out-of-body experience. And so I, I kind of startled a little uh, when you mentioned lying in the king's chamber mm -hmm. and being in a state of paralysis. Mm -hmm. How long did that last? Hours. Wasn't it terrifying? No. No. Um, I'm very, very lucky. I Of course I have fears in life. I mean, we, we, we all do. We all do. But I seem to have... Um, less than the average person. So, to me, um, I, 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 let's, you know, I mean, this will clear everything up. I actually personally believe in the continuation of life. And I, and I, I mean, that's not just, uh, I, I'm saying that. I really firmly believe that. Reincarnation. Yes. And so a lot of the things that I do in life, um, with, with that, you know, deeply embedded in my subconscious as, as deeply as that, I think that you can start letting go of a lot of fears because what is there to be afraid of? Well, certainly if reincarnation is a fact, uh, you're absolutely correct. What you is know, there to be afraid of? Um, there's the unknown. And mostly we fear fear. Mostly we fear the unknown. And so I, um, having had experiences, you know, um, and a great solid belief in spirit, I think that I don't think I can come to any harm. It doesn't mean that I won't come to any harm, but I have a great trust in, in all that is. I mean, I, I traveled, and I mean, I just did a 7,000-mile drive around Great Britain all by myself and, you know, spending times in the middle of the night in, in the most extraordinary places. And Egypt was like that for me as well. I was fortunate enough to have been given permission to be able to spend... Um, or, you know, a couple of months in the darkest hours before dawn all by myself in these extraordinary temples. How do you get permission for that? Well, what happened was that when I 
finished the first expedition in 1991 with the team, um, you know, I made this prayer that I'd have one nice photograph. I sent the work back to New York, and it had a, a wonderful, wonderful reception. And I ended up having a show in New York. And suddenly, after trying to become a businesswoman or whatever I was doing, I was an artist. Um, while I had mm-hmm. the show in New York, the director for the Ministry of Tourism of Egypt saw my work. And um, I, I'm very, very fortunate, Bill, um, Art, when you look at my work, and you will see it, it's very, very simple in style. But I've been um, you, you actually got up in a helicopter to yeah. photograph the Sphinx. Yeah. It, that was a great adventure, too, because that was the oldest helicopter that the military had, and I think it's the first helicopter the Russians ever made. So it was really old and big and, and jagged, you know, and it was it was pretty um, hazardous. They, mm. they, there was, um, I could have been given a harness that somebody else had who wasn't, le- I was leaning out of the back of the helicopter, and um, there was a, a liaison person going from me to the I, 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 too, flew from St. Petersburg, uh, Russia, into Moscow on an Aeroflot aircraft. Mm-hmm. And uh, Russian aircraft are, um, well, let's say it's for those who are interested in experiencing life. <laughs> <laughs> Life's adventures. Yeah, that's I'm right. so grateful for them. But that's what, you know, when we're talking about fear, um, you know, we, we do live on a planet full of fear. We're, we're taught fear from the very, very beginning. And I, as I was saying, I'm just blessed. I mean, every moment that I spent in those dark hours waiting for the light in the temples, there was never an ounce of fear, but just pure joy that I had the privilege to be able to experience that. I mean, to be there by yourself. Oh, I understand. And wait for the light and have those temples. Um, yeah, it's, it's really, really extraordinary. All right. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Caroline Davies. Hi, where are you, please? Hi, uh, this is Anna, and I'm calling from Mid-Missouri. Yes, and I have a question. Um, I was watching Discovery Channel just the other night, and they were talking about doing some DNA testing on mummies. Mm-hmm. And they had uh, were looking at the DNA of the different mummies and found out that um, these uh, pharaohs had very narrow gene pools. In other words, they were doing a lot of intermarriages amongst their families. And I was wondering, Carolyn, if um, you would have an explanation for why they were doing that. Is, was there a separateness in their culture? Um, or if you think that the um, ancients in Egypt could have descended from a celestial or extraterrestrial source? Mm, origin, yeah. Um, that's, that, technically, that's a question out of my field to give you an accurate answer really about the DNA testing and about why they they married that way but perhaps it's it's to keep a, a purity of their own genetic pool and and you know on the premise that they are descendants or we are descendants from another race besides what was here that they were you know wanting to create a certain kind of being I mean person human I, I really just don't know. it certainly could confirm some of what you suspect though it's mm-hmm. interesting research mm-hmm. west of the Rockies you're on the air with Caroline Davies hi hi this is Kathy from Los Angeles yes hi I do have a, a question and a comment for uh, your guest but I also wanted to know when can Southern California get dreamland back or because we miss it it'll be on KFMB beginning this next Sunday outstanding <laughs> Look forward to it. You know where that and is. And KBC shortly. So, yes, yeah, 760 from uh, San Diego. 
And then, of course, uh, KBC will carry it soon. Wonderful. We've missed it very much. Um, when she uh, talked about the, uh, the paralysis in the King's Chamber, I was wondering uh, if she had any kind of uh, mystical vision, if she saw anything, uh, if she experienced experienced anything other than just that state of being. uh, All right, that's a good, fair question. Good, fair question. Uh, Anything uh, beyond apparent paralysis? No, other than the eye. And what's been interesting about that eye is that that eye has followed me through through my next body of work, um, which I thought was was really really fascinating. Um, I I like to delve into a country's psyche as as much as I possibly can. I was born in Britain, although I I haven't lived there for any length of time. But um, when I returned to Britain to start working, um, I've had some really extraordinary experiences with Stonehenge, and the first time, and you know being given access to be able to shoot in Stonehenge. Did you see the crop circle? Oh, yes. I'm actually writing a story for Canadian magazine. Oh, you are. Caroline, Caroline, listen, we're near the top of the hour. I'd like to keep you over at least another 30 minutes. Can I do that? Yes. All right, good. Stay right where you are. And uh, since we're on the subject, since she happened to mention what she believes... I want you to listen something uh, to something through the top of the hour that I think you'll find fascinating. Listen carefully to the words and see what this suggests to you. We'll be back. I was a highway man Along the coach roads I did ride With sword and pistol by my side Many a young maid lost her baubles to my trade Many a soldier shed his lifeblood on my blade The masters hung me in the spring of 25 But I am still alive I was a sailor I was born upon the tide Call Art Bell 
toll-free. West of the Rockies at 1-800-618-8255. 1-800-618-8255. East of the Rockies at 1-800-825-5033. 1-800-825-5033. This is the CBC Radio Network. It certainly is. I've got Caroline Davies on the phone with me. She's done documentaries on the Sphinx, the pyramids, has been to Egypt, really all over the world. And she mentioned uh, just before the top of the hour, for those of you uh, particularly in Canada just joining us, crop circles. Interesting, she should mention that, because on top of the incredible, incredible moving video and audio we have regarding the, uh, the testing of arts parts at Redstone, which is awesome. I've just been getting the most spectacular replies. That's on the webpage. We have this morning on the webpage the first Canadian crop circle uh, that I have ever seen. It's an aerial photograph of a rather remarkable double circle, a large 42 feet uh, each in diameter, in a wheat field in Saskatchewan, in Canada. So if you would like to see that, as of this morning, uh, thanks to Paul, I want to thank Paul out there, it's uh, called the uh, Rokenville um, Crop Circle. That's R-O-C-A-N-B-I-L-L-E in Saskatchewan. Uh, you're going to want to take a look. Uh, so I would recommend a quick trip up to the website to see the newest. Good aerial photograph, uh, consistent in quality with those others we've had, Stonehenge, uh, the Double Helix, and so forth. Canada. Crop Circles in Canada. It's www.artbell.com www.artbell.com and we will talk of crop circles in a moment. I have a news back now to Caroline Davies. Caroline, are you there? Yes. Alright, uh, you intrigued me. Crop circles. Uh, I am fascinated with crop circles. You mentioned Stonehenge. Mm -hmm. There's 191 circles uh, at Stonehenge. Yeah. Obviously not done by a human being. What have you, uh, you, you, you actually walked in the Stonehenge? I, I did. I, I, I flew over that one and did some aerial shots of that one and went inside and did some interior shots of it. And that was one, um, glyph that actually, um, my camera equipment just died within oh, a, no. a few minutes, you know, absolutely dead. Well, I've got a wonderful aerial photograph of it. I mean, really wonderful, uh, including the, the circle area and then Stonehenge in the background yeah. up on my website. It's really incredible. What do you think these things are? Well, that's another interesting question, isn't it? Yes. And the possibilities of what they are until we really know what they are, are are very intriguing as well. I think that they are uh, uh, an expression from our extraterrestrial friends, perhaps interdimensional friends, and, and perhaps in combination with the energetics of the planet, or Gaia herself. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, um, I, I, the, the work, the, the personal internal work that I've done, the shamanic work that I've done, once we're out of this particular realm of reality, it seems as though, if I can be very broad here, um, you, you know, so we, we come into these bodies and, and we seem to lose a memory and a, and a realization that there is so much more to existence than what we can touch with our hands or see with our, you know, with our eyes. And once you are out of that particular realm of reality or existence, from my experience, it seems that we are so connected 
And whether it's the energetic of the planet itself or whether it's extraterrestrials or interdimensional beings, it really doesn't make that much difference. Well, it doesn't the in the sense that it's obviously very important. Mm-hmm. It's important in one way or the other, whichever it is. Yes, uh, yes, they are. Wildcard Line, you're on the air with Caroline Davies. Where are you, please? I'm calling from uh, uh, the uh, larger supplier of uh, uranium. Uh, actually, it's the uh, Regina, Saskatchewan. Oh, uh, Saskatchewan, home yeah. of the newest crop circle. Yeah. Uh, yeah, actually, uh, it is pretty interesting, actually, because uh, uh, you had just said the other day that you had a, uh, a phone anomaly or something to that effect. Where yes, uh-huh. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it, there was definitely a nominal, like, when it happened just, you know, a while back, um, you know, something really did happen here, you know, and there, it, it, it actually, you know. Oh, as a matter of interest, were there any sightings there in Saskatchewan, or, or what was attendant with the form, formation of this crop circle? Well, actually, if I, if I told you I actually, uh, know, you know, how it happened, it would probably sound pretty stupid, but, um, kind of nervous, but well, yeah, what are, if, if you know how it happened, uh, go ahead and sound stupid. Let's hear it. Well, okay. Ever since I've listened to your program, it it does seem really knowledgeable. Like you, you do seem to. It, it seems to be, you know, you're giving the gift of you know knowledge, and uh, it, I don't know. I, I actually think it has some relation to uh, neutrinos. Like uh, the news. Like I, I had phoned you before, and I had said, you know, you know, my newscast, you know, isn't as good as you, you know, and. Uh, but actually, lately, they've been, you know, telling us more and more, you know, what's going on. And, well, the uh, CBC, uh, Canadian CBC, did a big report on it. I've got it right mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really intense, eh? Yeah, really intense indeed. Yeah. Yes, sir, thank you. So, um, there you are. Uh, I I want to know what these things are. <laughs> have you been to them and have you been inside them, Art? No, no, I have not yet. Uh, I had it. I didn't have enough. I was in England, uh, in London, here not long ago, mm-hmm. but I didn't have enough time. Mm-hmm. And I thought by then it would have been trampled down pretty well. I'm sure a million people have been into it. What's it like in one? Well, I think everyone is different. Um, and my when I have been inside, let's see, in 1994, I, I was introduced to the circles in 1990-91 through a man called David Percy, who was showing me some correlations. Um, and then I went back in in 94 and started photographing some of the circles in the great field. And then last year I went back and. Um, dropped in on the Crop Circle Symposium that's held in Glastonbury. Oh, yes. Check them out just as a very interested, you know, I, I, I'm not what you would call a, uh, an official researcher, but, you know, I want to know what's going on. And then this year I did it as a journalist because I want to put together an article for a Canadian magazine. And this year was the most interesting because I felt, um, I was able to delve deeper because I am putting an article together. And, um, I, in my, travels, not only at the symposium, but some of the other people I interviewed, I also interviewed a man who is actually um, not very well liked by a lot of the people in the crop circle research field, um, a man called Rob Irving. And he was introduced to me by a magazine that I've been doing some work with because they said to me, we know somebody who makes them. Do you want to meet him? And I said, absolutely. Up until that point... Um, who makes the crop circles? Who, who physically makes them. I see. So I said, of course I want to talk to this person and, and see what their story is. Well, um, you know, what goes on generally in life, we sort of tend to make judgments and assumptions about what people are up to, and sometimes we're right, a lot of the time we're wrong. And um, having only dealt predominantly with people that were absolutely in belief that they could not be made by people, that they had to have 
another worldly source or an extra, you know, worldly source. Um, I found Robbie Irving to be very, very interesting. He was very, very convincing. Um, I've always left open an area where the possibility of people being able to make them. Um, well, let's discuss Stonehenge for a second yeah. in, in that in that light. Uh, I mean, here we have uh, what covering about ten acres, mm -hmm. uh, 191 uh, circles. Mm -hmm. And we have testimony, a written affidavit from a pilot who flew over the area and then 15 minutes flew back over the area. Right. And um, then the crop circle was there. Now, that would have been quite a chore for your man or anybody else's. I don't think, I don't think a person made that one either. I don't think people make perhaps that many, but I certainly know or oh, I'm sure feel they that some. they make some. Sure. And what I found interesting, now, this all gets mixed up because people are very, very passionate, as you know about these and they're very passionate about their research and, and what they're doing yes. um, so I really really understand that when I, I decided to stand objectively out of the ring of passion and out of the ring of what these are and just sort of look objectively at everybody's stories um, say that there are a group of people who have become pretty good at making these you know they've got their, their craft down they've, they've been practicing for a while they mm -hmm. made some bad ones and they got it down what my observation of this and correlating all my material is that with some of these glyphs that people are making is that the, the effect of them actually isn't different than the ones that our unknown friends are. In, in that sense, people go in and they'll have healing experiences or mystical experiences. They'll be able to be doused or the people, it's been said, that are making them will have phenomena happen around them. Um, or, you know, one guy will make a, a, I've been told this story by a very reliable source that one guy was sitting down and quite a few times had drawn what he was going to do and then he would turn up in the field and it would be there. And stories like that well, make it very fascinating. All right. What is also fascinating, though, is that many of the larger ones have had the, um, uh, the affected crops tested. Dr. Levengood tests a lot of them. Right. And there are molecular changes that cannot be produced with men with boards and chains, period. I, I believe that, Art, and that's what makes this very, very interesting because, again, um, you know, sort of watching this objectively, is it not possible that one of the messages, obviously a lot of people are interpreting these a lot of different ways and everybody's probably got a piece of the pie. Is it possible that one of the things that these circles or glyphs are teaching us is that in this particular period of time of our history, when we're in a revolution, we're growing up, we're awakening, we're in the quickening, um, I've heard that term used as well, that, that it's also to show us that we have abilities beyond what we realize. You know the power of the mind is extraordinary. What you are suggesting mm -hmm. is that they may come from us Um, they may come from us? Yeah. How do you mean that? Exactly the way I just said it. In other words, some of these may come from our own beings. They may come, they may be projected by people. Or perhaps it's, yes, that's, that's a possibility. Perhaps it's also a form of communication that's begun, open communication or equal communication. Um, well, they're mathematical. Yes. Uh, there's no question about that, it. That's what makes them so spectacular and beautiful. All right. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Caroline Davies. Hi. Hi. Uh, this is 
Yes, sir. Uh, I'd like to ask your guest uh, a two-part question and, and then ask you one final question. I'll give it all to you at one time, if that's okay. Go. Okay, uh, Ms. Caroline. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was interested in uh, you explaining in what manner or what, what the methodology is, is that is used in dating uh, a stone structure such as the Sphinx. Uh, obviously, carbon dating can't be used or it would have, right. it would have been nailed down already. Right. Good question. Uh, so how do you okay. date them? Okay. The Sphinx in this particular case has been dated according to geology. When you look at the body of the Sphinx and the Sphinx enclosure, I don't know if you have seen a close-up photograph or if you can bring it to mind, you'll see that the Sphinx is built from a ditch. When you look at the walls of the ditch and the weathering on the body of the Sphinx in the parts that haven't been repaired in our history, there are really very deep fissures, some up to seven feet deep. When a geologist such as Dr. Schott from Boston looks at this, he looks at it and goes, oh, this is interesting. This weathering can only have been caused by large amounts of precipitation. The only time that there was enough precipitation on the plateau was you know, somewhere between four and before four and five thousand BC. So that's where the dating is coming from. I've heard I've heard uh, time frames as as far as ten thousand BC. I've heard time frames yes. beyond two hundred thousand years. That's why I mean wow. I don't I don't really know. I mean I know that it's very very ancient. Um, it's really extraordinary when you go there in these current days and you see the exquisite. Um, craftsmanship or something like that. And well, I, we, we, we can't even decide in this current day and age whether we're uh, experiencing global warming or not. So, um, you know, it's kind of an open question when you look at weathering uh, way back. But I guess it's the only way we can, we can begin to... Uh, that, that's why we can't give a definitive date on it because we can go, well, okay, we've miscalculated this because we can calculate, well, this amount of you know, weathering and, and this shape and so on and so forth must have been done before four or 5,000 B.C. because that's when there was rain. Um, you know, and again, the specifics haven't been nailed down yet. All right. Well, there you are, uh, caller. I've all, all, also wondered uh, that there have obviously been ex- excavations around the structure. Uh, have there ever been any attempts possibly to retrieve uh, an item that might have been left behind that could be carbon dated? And lastly, uh, I'd like to ask Art to comment on, have any of your remote viewers, uh, Art, indicated or given any information at all yes. concerning uh, the, the dating? As well, not we so much, all, all right, sir, uh, not so much the dating, but the, uh, the items within the secret chambers lying below the Sphinx. What do you think uh, may lie below the Sphinx, uh, Caroline? Um, I know that there are enormous amount of tunnels and chambers under the Giza Plateau. Edgar Cayce um, and many other um, mystics and, and seers have predicted that the you know infamous Hall of Records are underneath the, the Sphinx area. Um, I think that when you think about the, the changing sands of time, and when you think about the, the ditch that only takes 20 years to be filled with sand, yes. 
that we have enormous amounts of clues underneath the earth and that we just haven't dug deep enough. He asked about any attendant items that might have been found within that would allow carbon dating. Has there been anything like well, that? Well, one of three things could have happened. Um, we certainly don't know about it. It's That doesn't mean that it hasn't been found. Right. Um, secondly, that um, there is nothing. And thirdly, that there is something and we just haven't found it yet. All right. Uh, west of the Rockies, you're on the air with Caroline Davies. Hi. Yeah, hi, Bart. Hi, Caroline. Hi. Uh, I had a couple questions about uh, Egypt. Mm -hmm. uh, first, since we're talking about chambers, the last I had heard was uh, uh, the uh, opening of those chambers was being blocked because of uh, private enterprise mm -hmm. uh, and also supposedly tied in with the Edgar Casey Foundation. Mm -hmm. uh, what's happening now to change all that? All right, good question. What was the last part of the question? He, he said, what is happening to change all of that? Um, that that uh, I'm I'm not sure. I think um, Graham Hancock actually would be able to answer that much better than I can at the moment. But yes, I'm aware of that problem going on. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Well, it is. And uh, are you? Do you agree with Graham? Graham is just terribly concerned yeah. about the way they are proceeding to be shortly opening all of this. Mm. Do you share that? Uh, not, not with the passion and intensity that he, that he does. Um, again, you know, things happen in this world that sometimes we don't fully comprehend or fully understand, and uh, that's just a personal belief of mine that that steps me, sort of sometimes or keeps me sometimes out of impassioned points of view. Um, you, you know, it's it's a really it, it goes. There's so much to this particular argument that. We probably, you know, can't get into right now. All right. Well, how about one more half hour? Can you do one more? Yeah, half hour? Sure. All right. Good. Stay right there. Caroline Davis is my guest. We're discussing Egypt, Egypt, the Sphinx, the pyramids. This is the American CBC Radio Network. on the wild card line at 702-727-1295. That's 702-727-1295. First-time callers can reach Art Bell at 702-727-1222. 702-727-1222. Now, here again, Art Bell. My guest is Caroline Davies. We'll get back to her in a moment. If you're tired of missing... 21st, it will air again this Saturday. So if you want to see what happens next, you better be there. NBC, Saturday, Dark Skies. Caroline Davies, now back. Caroline, are you there? Yes, I am. All right, lots of people want to talk to you. Uh, Wild Card Line, you're on the air with Caroline Davies. Where are you calling from, please? California. Yes, sir. Um, Carol, um, thank you, Art, and it's a privilege. Um, Carol, I just wanted to, to get your opinion of um, Akhenaten's concepts of one God and how this and the pyramids relate to our concept of one God. Oh, um, that's an interesting question. Um, 
I haven't studied Akhenaten deeply. However, I have been around many people that have and feel that he was a major and potent and very, very important um, force in the direction of a history and a spiritual connection. Um, uh, that was rather radical, you know, for Egypt at that time when Akhenaten did come along. Um, the pyramids, as relating to, do you, do you, are you saying it's symbolically as God or? Well, um, I don't, you know, for me personally, I've always been drawn to the pyramids. And, and for me, there is something about the pyramids that transcends most great objects. It's, it almost seems from a purely mm-hmm. spiritual, intuitive sense that there is something infinitely universal. Yes. yes, yes, I have the same feeling about it. Well, I, I think that's because whether, you know, um, let's just look at the tetrahedron for a second, which is pyramidal shape, which um, technically is a, a foundation building block for all matter. Okay, so we have that affiliation, even though we're talking about a five-sided pyramid, technically, when we look at the Great Pyramids of Giza. Um, the, it's a doorway. I mean, you know, if, I, I think that we can use it and particularly that king's chamber as a doorway. Stargate. Yeah. <laughs> First time caller line, you're on the air with Caroline Davies. Hi. Yes, hi. Uh, it's a real pleasure to speak with you this morning. Um, where are you, where are you, sir? I'm calling from Philadelphia. All right. I'm, uh, my name's Paul, by the way. By the way, but um, it's really wonderful to hear somebody with uh, with your attitude, Miss Davies, toward toward uh, information and mysteries and um, it's very inspiring, and it's an honor to speak with somebody that has gone to these sites and photographed these things and looked at the Sphinx with the with the intelligence that you have. And um, what I wanted to ask you, I've been, you know, I've been very interested in the Sphinx recently, mm-hmm. and uh, I've been looking at it and trying to figure which do you believe that that is the original face that was on the Sphinx? I or, don't. Yeah, go ahead. No, I, I don't think it can be. Right. Right. Could be wrong, but I don't think so. Um, yeah. It's out of proportion to the rest of the body of the Sphinx. Is right, there is there a way, if I can break it, is, 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 is there a way to computer project what it might have been? Did, um, if you recall on our documentary art, we had a section where we had the, he's not anymore, but he was at the time the um, head detective of the forensic department of the New York Police Department. Yes. Oh, yeah. And we had him restructure the face from what is left now. And um, it's it's certainly not the same face that has been attributed to the building of the Sphinx, which is the Ferro Chefren. Right. Um, but uh, to me, the, the face has to have been recarved just because it's out of sync with the rest of the proportional ingenuity that the ancients had. Right. Do you, sculpted do, you, that. do you have an impression of which king that the face may be now? No. I don't, I don't either. I, have, I can't figure it out. And I was, and it it would it would be wonderful to know what face was on it originally. Yes, and it would I look be. at it and try to see who is that over there. Yeah, well, we've got obviously ways and means of doing that now, where we can put all that together. Right. Well, it's all very exciting. Yes, so, it is. Sure is. It's really nice to talk to you. Thanks Thank a lot, you, Art. Too. Thank you, sir. And uh, have a good morning. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Caroline Davies. Hi. Yes. Hi, Art. Steve from South Dakota. Yes, sir. It's a great pleasure to speak to your guest, you know, tonight. Uh, I have a book here that I I had the great the uh, great pleasure of you know meeting John Anthony West in the mm-hmm. uh, you know Sioux Falls last July. Yeah. And I bought his book, The Traveler's Key to Ancient Egypt. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a marvelous 
it's about a 500-page book uh, on the all of the ancient sacred sites, mm-hmm. and he uh, dedicates about 50 or 60 pages just to the Giza pyramids. Yeah, and. Uh, there is some mention in here uh, of some uh, research by Eric von Donneken mm-hmm. on the pyramid as uh, uh, headquarters for astronauts and the ET, uh, some kind of an ET connection. Mm-hmm. Could, could you, do you hold any credence to this at all? I think it's very possible. Hmm. So there you are. That's okay. your answer, very possible. But it's hard to say anything for sure, isn't it? Yeah, because that's what we're finding. Every time we're so sure, we're so certain, something else comes along and we go, <laughs> you know, and, and scientists like that, as we, as we become technologically more advanced, I think we're realizing that before we couldn't make judgments accurately because we didn't have the right equipment to do so. Uh, west of the Rockies, you're on the air with Caroline Davies. Hi. Uh, yes, Art. It's very, very honored to be on your show. Where are you, sir? I'm on Bainbridge Island, Washington. All right. Uh, my name is Kirk. And I had a quick question for the both of you. Uh, you guys were talking about the passageways underneath the Sphinx and what may lie in them. Um, what, I'm a young listener, just got very interested in the Sphinx and what may be, what may be holding its messages. Um, I just want to know what's holding us back from going deeper and finding some of the answers that may lie underneath. Well, the answer is we're, we're about to go deeper. Uh, if you listen uh, a Saturday morning uh, to Graham Hancock and uh, Robert Baval, you'll, you'll hear how quickly it's going to occur. Too quickly, in their opinion, and in too blustery and commercial a way. And they're afraid that a lot of the information that may be in there will be hidden or lost. Right. Uh, are you concerned about that, uh, Caroline? Yeah, I am. I mean, you know, when you had asked me before if I held the same feelings, I said, well, you know, I'm not as in passion, but that certainly is massively important, and I, I really um, feel simpatico about the idea of it being done with a lot of with respect that it deserves. Exactly. Yeah, all right. Um, first time caller line. You're on the air with Caroline Davies. Hi. Yeah. Hi. Would uh, you turn your radio off, please? Okay. Hold on. Okay. Well, I'll hold on for a moment. Um, everybody should be prepared to turn off their radio right away. Are you there? Not no more. Okay, that's right, you're not. West of the Rockies, you're on the air with Caroline Davies. Hi. Good evening, uh, Art and your guest, Caroline. Yes. Uh, two things. First of all, <clears throat> excuse me, um, 10,500 years, or 12,500 years ago is the date of all the monuments, according to the stars, whether that's when they were built or... And that's uh, some significance, I don't know, but that's the date of, you know, they all line up with stars, including this thing, is 12,500 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh second was about the, um today I heard something on the news, it was very interesting, I just caught the end of it, and it was something about something being 150,000 years older than they originally thought. That's and, right. And the archaeologists, we're in an uproar. That's right. Mm-hmm. What was that? It uh, tells me I, a lot about the archaeology. It was in the uh, Seattle Times, sir, and it was about the age of man in Australia. They seem to have found evidence of modern man uh, estimated to be about 176,000 years old. Why would they want to be in an uproar? Wouldn't that make them happy? Isn't that their job? No, they would be in an uproar, sir, because careers, entire paradigms, um, 
But wouldn't your career parallel forward if you if you accepted this and said, "Look at people, look at new discoveries. See, I'm not an idiot." Well, well, yeah, but those who are threatened would squash you like a bug. Right, and it means change. And some people are are really happy with the status quo. Coward. Well, uh, fine. Uh, uh, You can say that, and I don't necessarily disagree with that, man. But um, look, careers are threatened. I mean, people have built entire careers, give lectures. Uh, are at universities based on what they think has been true, and so they are challenged. You know, it's a funny thing. Um, it has been said and was written in the Brookings report that one of the biggest groups of people that would absolutely go off their nut if uh, extraterrestrial life were found um, or the paradigms were crushed would be the scientists. Mm-hmm. They would be the least likely to be able to take it. And I believe that. Mm-hmm. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> and and um, some of our theologists as well. Yes, indeed. Um, but but definitely. All right, Wild Card Line. You're on the air with Caroline Davies. Oh, Hi. good. I'm um, finally got through, Bob. What you're just talking about is absolutely true. Because I studied anthropology and astronomy after World War II, and all of this stuff was like back to Peking Man and all that kind of business. But Caroline, may I speak with you, please? Yes. Yeah. I was on a cruise with my wife, Taylor Caldwell, in 1979, and we went to Giza. And, of course, she didn't come with me, and I started to climb up to the king's chamber, and then I saw the tunnel open to the queen's chamber. So I snuck down, and, you know, it's only about four feet high, and I just snuck in there, or sneaked in there, to put it in better English. And I got there to the queen's chamber, and I went into my lion posture, which is what I was doing my meditation, and I left my body. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how long I was gone, but all I know is when I came back, I thought, gee, I've got to get out of here. And I literally floated back through the tunnel, and when I got there, they were locking the pyramid up because I felt I should get back to my wife. Mm-hmm. And my wife was a very spiritual person. She'd written a book about the uh, Atlantis way back when she was 12. Mm-hmm. And we're planning a, a trip to the pyramids. Uh, Arthur, why don't you come with us? Well, I'm going to the pyramids, sir, in October. Uh, well, we're leaving this October. We're leaving, no, in December. We're leaving December. December. All right. Well, I'm going uh, next October. That's uh, my plan. So if you want to wait and come with us, you're welcome. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Caroline Davies. Hi. Hello? Yes. Uh, yes, uh, Mr. Bell? Yes, where are you? I'm in uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Yes, sir. The um, <clears throat> Your guess is very interesting, and um, my uh, question to her would be, uh, are you... Or, or even you, are you familiar with any of the teachings of the uh, Nation of Islam? No. Caroline? No. Uh, what about you, Mr. Bell? Vaguely, yes. Uh, why? Well, the um, you're, you're always, many of your callers are basically uh, sort of hitting around basically what the uh, much of the tenets of the Nation of Islam talks about. That's, well, I think, I think since you are familiar with the, the teachings, um, how would somebody with your belief system Look at the monuments uh, at Giza. Well, uh, we're taught in the Nation of Islam that the um, the age of man is is a lot older than uh, six thousand years or ten thousand years. That that men that that human beings go back uh, trillions of years, and so this all ties in with um, I guess the discoveries of uh, Richard Hoagland and um, Graham yes. Hancock. Yes. And that the, um, we were taught that the moon at one point was a part of the earth, that through cataclysms, that it was ejected from the earth and uh, orbits the earth, and that's why, you know, you will find monuments on the, on the moon, because the moon at one point was 
part of the earth, and that we're we're also taught that the um, that the many, much of the uh, the things that you're finding now are basically things that man had done millions of, and thousands, hundreds of thousands of years ago. All right. Well, look, I I appreciate it, Caroline. The theory uh, held by many. Um, in science, in fact, uh, there, there have been some documentaries uh, recently, The Mysterious Origins of Man, for example, that theorize that man has been here and gone and been here and gone in cycles, mm -hmm. that continents have moved like musical chairs, mm -hmm. uh, and that uh, what, old, what is old uh, is new again. Mm -hmm. You think that could be? Yes. You do believe that? Yeah. Caroline, hold on. We'll be right back to you. This is Coast to Coast AM. Have you seen... Uh, Caroline, is there a way that people uh, who are interested uh, can communicate with you? Mm-hmm. How would that be? Um, I have a phone number that is in Los Angeles. Now, be careful. Is this a personal number? No, this is my business number. All right, good. Number. Go right ahead. It's Los Angeles, area code 213-580-9756. 9756. All right, that's area code 213-580-9756. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. right. yeah. All right, I just wanted to get that out. Uh, Wildcard Line, you're on the air with Caroline Davies. Hi. Hello, Miss Davies. Hello. Hi, this is uh, Mateo calling from San Francisco, California. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to say I view the pyramids in a very negative light. Um, well, that's interesting. If only because I know that... Uh, in building pyramids, both in in Mayan culture here in, on, the, on the in the Western Hemisphere and in Egypt as well, it took many thousands of slaves to build these things. Maybe uh, I yeah, just I what, what do you think about that? I think um, like art, maybe, but I actually tend to think that it was beyond using um, thousands and millions of slaves. Uh, That's just my personal belief. Right, and I also uh, my other question is. What do you think the significance is of the pyramid with the eye on the back of the $1 bill? Does that have any uh, relation to what you're talking about? It has a personal relationship with me, um, which I've spoken a little bit about throughout this, but also it has um, you know, quite a, a mystical um, perspective as well when you think of it being on our dollar note, the Masons. Um, then the all-seeing eye with, you know, ancient, ancient races um, called the Watchers that have been referred to. In, the Watchers? In, yes. You've heard of them? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there are three things to begin with, and there are probably much more than that, too. All right. Uh, west of the Rockies, you're on the air with Caroline Davies. Hi. Hello. Hello. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, uh, my name is Marsha. I'm from Sacramento. Hi, Marsha. Um, I wanted to ask Caroline if... Um, for one thing, if there could be any uh, possibility that our uh, generation or our, our people actually were on Mars, and because of the global warming effect, we've had to migrate out. Well, actually, it's, it's the theory that I understand is quite the other way around. In other words, that Mars once was populated, had an atmosphere, and either had a close brush with an astronomical object that destroyed it, or uh, itself was a victim of some sort of global warming. Uh, and that we are the ancestors of those who once lived on the red planet. Uh, what say you, Caroline? Um, that's what I've heard, too. And I think that um, I've heard from more than one source that idea as well. Well, listen, uh, we're, we're at the end of the time here. Um, do you plan, uh, Caroline, to, to go back uh, at any point? Uh, where does your research go from here? Um, I have to complete. I'm in post-production now for my British project which means that, you know, I've spent quite a lot of time uh, going backwards and forwards 
um, doing that. While I'm concurrently doing that, I have a project in the United States called um, Nature's Sacred Temples, which I'll be focusing through the eyes of the Native Americans um, to work with their particular sacred sites and probably concurrently work with South America's as well. I I, a, lot of, a lot of people have uh, recently been talking to me about that, the sites, the pyramids, in fact, uh, in South America, mm -hmm. uh, and even some Native American uh, monuments, do they relate in some way? I I think that they do. That goes back to my original inspiration of doing this work, um, that somehow we have a common denominator, and we're just not aware of it. Just but, it hasn't hit us yet. Not yet. But people like Richard Hoagland and John West and you know Graham Hancock, all those guys are doing great work, and I think that they are part of the bigger picture where we'll all bring a little piece to the whole and we'll get the answer, you know, sooner or later. Sooner or later. I'm, I sure <laughs> do hope in my lifetime. I'm sure it will be. <laughs> Caroline, it, uh, it has really been a pleasure having you on the air, and I'm glad you were able to get up in the middle of the night, and I, I hope that you can have a restful sleep for the rest of the night. Thank you. All right. Uh, thank you, Caroline. You're welcome. Good it's night. A pleasure. Good, Good night. Good night. Uh, if you want to uh, contact Caroline, she does have a Los Angeles number, which is area code 213 five eight zero nine seven five six that's area code two one three five eight zero nine seven five six and tomorrow or so the next day i don't know soon we're going to be telling you about the art bell 97 cruise the 97 terror cruise for those who don't mind living life we're going to be going to egypt and the sphinx the giza area You'll be hearing about it. This is CBC.